Gateway, good to be here with you digitally. You know, this is a season where we get to sit in the midst of the tension and you're thinking, Kyle, I've been doing this for 15 months now. I've been sitting in the tension and I, I just want to affirm you, honor you where you're at in the season. Perhaps you're, you're jumping back on here and you're on the internet and you're rewatching a teaching and you're with us live on when this thing went live on Sunday and perhaps you're in a different position. Uh, you are joining us online and this is a season where these teachings give you life and a place to join in community. Just as a reminder, after these teachings, there is a place where you can do a, a pop-up community group. There's um, just some lovely people who show up there, uh, dsm.online.church, like you're able to connect right in with those folks afterwards. I just want to remind that to any of y'all who feel still feel lonely <laughs> this season. But on a, on a practical note, uh, you know, we are waiting in this season from our landlords with respect to how uh, we are responding with COVID and CDC guidelines and regulations. And so uh, the building that we're in, we are uh, in a relationship where we want to honor the terms of our lease. And so there's, um, well, there's things that are in language that I don't really understand. And so with our team, our board, uh, last week we s issued just a, a letter of just with some pastoral notes and some practical implications of how we hope to gather back in person. And as soon as we hear anything from you, we will update you. This is me essentially saying at this point, we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, we've not heard anything. So by Sunday, you may have already received something and then this is just a silly little announcement, but at least you know, hey, like, this is us trying to love one another through communication. And so uh, that that too is just a, a place where we need your help. If there's a need, whether it be uh, physical, emotional, spiritual, like we want to be here to attend to one another in love. And so if you're even feeling over the, the, the course of these past few weeks, like emotionally agitated and don't know where to turn, please reach out. My, my email is kyleatthegatewaychurch.com. Like, I would love to be able to connect you into a place of care in our community um, or particularly just outside of our community if it's a therapeutic in relationship. So those are the details as it pertains to that. <laughs> now we're just going to turn to the teaching because good transitions, you know. Uh, so in the first years of marriage, I quickly learned just how different I am from my partner, Jessica. You know, I wanted things done in a very particular way in our home. And wouldn't you believe it that she wanted things done in a particular way in our home as well? We didn't always align. I had some expectations and expectations are the oughts and shoulds that we bring into relationships and different scenarios. So I had some expectations. She had some expectations, and again, they did not always align. And, and to be clear, that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's more of just a thing. I mean, difference can be beautiful. In places of, of difference, we have opportunities for variety and new perspectives and ample places to learn. And of course, that's uh, my, my way of now saying um, conflict. <laughs> conflict is a place to learn. Uh, you know, wisdom says that conflict will always happen. It's going to happen regardless of temperament or engagement or how you carry your preferences or expectations. It, it will happen. Like you cannot avoid conflict. However, you can choose how you do conflict. You can be active or reactive. That is, you can be present to the moment or you can allow the moment to present something to you that you don't know what the heck to do with. 
You could be passive or aggressive or a family favorite. You can be passive aggressive. And I'm not just talking about my family. That's like a church family thing that we, uh, we're going to be looking at our past here today. So just, you know, in love. So at this point, now back to my relationship with my wife. Like, I don't even remember what the fight was about. I imagine it was just like a rerun episode about where a dish towel goes or something like that. But I was determined that we would settle the matter that night. And so after a persistent rhetorical barrage from me to her just turns and she just goes, fine. I don't know if you heard the tone there. It's it's not like a winsome moment. It was like I had beaten her with words. And so in reluctance, she said, fine. And though the words said, yes, we can have the conversation, there was something that said the conversation was over. You see, I come from a family that fought. Like I'm talking, like there's some, a lot of unhealth when I say fought, like not just words, bodies, that kind of a thing. And it was loud and it was big and it would carry on for days. The way that it carried on for days is it would be silent treatment and cold shoulders and just silence altogether, avoidance and separation at worst. And so when I come to conflict, I want to avoid all of that stuff. I want resolution. And I don't want to wait for resolution. I want to get it right then and there because I, want, I don't want any of that other stuff. So if I trust you, I press in. I lean in right away. Whereas with Jessica, she comes from a family where avoidance is the rule. And um, it rules as the unspoken rule. It's, it's, maybe you come from a family like this where if you don't look at it, if you don't talk about it, and if you don't think about it, which is, I guess, maybe the end goal, then it just goes away. I imagine you could see how our two families, us coming together is a recipe for success. See, our, our fighting, it wasn't like my family's. It wasn't like Jessica's family's. It was uniquely ours. It was littered with bits and pieces pulled from the catalog of our pasts. And my, my point is simply this, that our present is shaped by our past. See, who you are is shaped by where, more specifically, who you come from. Which means that apart from Jesus, your family of origin is the strongest force acting upon your life. For better and for worse. And what that means is that the good, the bad, and the ugly has shaped and is shaping who you are today and who you will become the next day and the day after that. And today we continue in this little series on the emotional health of a church and the way of Jesus. This is a part one of a two-part, maybe a three-part, maybe a four-part teaching on the past. And more specifically, the power of the past. If you've been with us these past couple weeks, my guess is you're starting to get, to get a taste of what it looks like to pursue emotional health in the way of Jesus. If not, here's a little refresher. The, the basic premise goes like this. A Christian cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And that may sound harsh. The, the idea is that our capacity to, to notice and name and attend to and love what's going on in and around us, or in other words, our emotional health, that, are, that calibrates the rest of our life. 
That aspect of our life, our emotional health, it calibrates our physical and spiritual and social and intellectual life. It almost acts as a ceiling for the rest of us. A testament to this is the person for whom practices like prayer and Bible study and even fasting occur regularly. They also occur regularly in conjunction with envy, unchecked anger, and other things like that. See, who we are is shaped by where and who we come from. And that little line that you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, it, it brings us to the place of our past, to confront that place. And often this place, the, the past, and more specifically our, our family of origin, it is this entangled like emotional mess. And there's been times in our lives where some strands have been pulled out, not by our own choosing, and we're just reminded of how messy it is. So we wrap it back up and put it away. <laughs> some of us have tried to untangle it, and we have felt that. Others of us have, have indeed, like, are in the process of untangling that and are experiencing the mess and the grace of God in the midst of all of it. But I just want to be clear on, on what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the family of origin. See, I don't just mean your siblings, your mom or your dad. I, I do mean that. And I also mean your extended family, your wacky aunt and your grandma and your grandpa to the third and fourth generation. And that timetable, it's, it's intentional. There's observations that come to bear on this teaching both from science and scriptures because both science and scriptures, uh, they bear witness to the significance of those who've gone before us to the third and fourth generation. And so first some science and then we'll get to the, the good stuff, the scripture. And so the science here, uh, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's a leading neurologist, she started doing some research around PTSD back in the day when PTSD was a relatively new diagnosis and it was still somewhat controversial. Her research led her to work with Holocaust survivors. She herself is a Jewish woman. Her parents are Israeli and she grew up in a community surrounded by this and then went to medical school, did all these things and then found herself in this place of kind of engaging with a, a an extended family of her own, if you will. And so in the midst of this research, it was somewhat by, by happenstance, you know, she was uh, researching what some have now called intergenerational trauma or ancestral trauma or this uh, like epigenetics. And I like read some of the stuff that she's written. And to be honest with you, I don't understand it. The words made little to no sense. <laughs> like Bible nerds and medical research, I don't, whoever can hold that together, please help me. Uh, but this is what I gathered from this. I like how she described it in an interview. So paraphrasing, she said that our environments act on our bodies down to a cellular level, going so far as to act upon the genetic markers. Because pain, if it's not dealt with, it doesn't go away, it just goes deeper. And then this was the comparison she made that it was so helpful for me. Um, she, she talked about meringue. So maybe you're like into baking or kind of uh, cooking in general. Meringue is just egg whites and sugar. And you gotta mix those things up and you get the air in there and the sugar, it holds, I don't know, the proteins, everything hold together. And then it fluffs up and you put it in the oven on top of a pie and it's beautiful. 
Well, if you change anything in the environment, you change the temperature, you change the, the tool you're using to whisk, you change the vessel within which you're whisking, any of those things will inevitably alter the meringue as it comes together. So too, a human who is under intense environmental stress, under an altered environment, if you will, like that of the Holocaust, then the human is altered in turn. So in her research, Yehuda isolated a stress hormone that was distinct to the trauma of the Holocaust survivors, and not necessarily distinct to Holocaust survivors, but like it was there because of the Holocaust is my understanding. And so there it is, that stress home and the cortisone is right in there. And she's studying it in relationship to post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is what gets interesting. In the midst of her research, she begins to receive calls from the children of Holocaust survivors who say that they too are victims of the Holocaust. And so she's thinking in the line of, okay, that makes sense. Like you're being parented by people who are dealing with intense trauma. So this is playing out in kind of adverse parenting and social environments, et cetera, et cetera. And she grew up in communities like this. So she is able now to notice and name some of those markers from her own past. But then she went further than her assumption and she uh, tested some of these, the, the children of Holocaust survivors for that same hormone, for that, for that same marker. And it, it was right there. Then she went even further and she tested the grandchildren of those who experienced the Holocaust and that same marker was there. Yehuda's findings, they end up give, they give kind of scientific language to what the scriptures have claimed for over 3,500 years, namely that the sin of the parents, the sin of the father extends to the third and the fourth generation. And this is still somewhat, I suppose, in 2021, kind of a, a controversial thing. Is it correlation or causation, all these things? I don't understand that. And yet what was fascinating for me is to see that this language has been embedded for the, in the scriptures for so long. You see, this is less this idea of um, the sin of the father extending to the third and fourth generation. This is less about um, like me paying off the cosmic debt of a grandfather or something like that. And it's more about how traumatic pain, if not dealt with, it doesn't just go away. It goes deeper. It actually goes into our bodies and through us to the bodies that come from our bodies. There's a saying it goes like this, I may have Jesus in my heart, but I have grandpa in my bones and grandma and that wacky aunt as well. See, tragically, as we grow up, we often are trained into this or just are naive to it. We're blind or in denial of the power of the past. Like we know these little phrases. It's ironic in like um, in this moment of cultural history, when individualism and secularism are running rampant, we still say things like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or she is her mother's daughter. Like those are regular expressions. I, I often hear my mother-in-law say that to my wife and I just, then I go, yeah, that's, that's kind of true. <laughs> so these statements are still active in our vocabulary and in our grammar, but until we recognize the way that our past has shaped us, then we're likely to live out the patterns of our family for better or for worse, and we'll just go on calling it life. So to see how this plays out in the Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, where we're going to look at a little family lineage, the third and fourth generation 
You may have grown up singing songs about Father Abraham has many sons. You're going to see how dysfunctional they are here. So Genesis uh, chapter 12, starting off in verses 1 to 3, uh, we read this. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And then there's this kind of like poetic break where God is announcing blessing over Abram. This is the, the, the inheritance of sorts. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. If you're new to the Bible or you're just a little fuzzy on your Genesis and the story going on there, here's a little refresh. In the previous chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 11, what we see is that all of humanity stands in opposition to God. This little thing called the Tower of Babel where like all of human ingenuity is rising up together to quote, make a name for themselves. They're on the uh, like floodplains of ancient Mesopotamia. They're building this thing called a Zagarat, which is like an ancient temple to get themselves up to the heavens to exalt themselves. And in God's mysterious and gracious justice, he scatters and divides the people. And you turn the page, and out of those scattered people who would be functionally enemies, God chooses. He moves toward this man, this no-name man from nowhere, Abram. A man whose own name mocked him. I mean, Abram literally means exalted father, and yet he is infertile and old. To this man, God says, you will be the one through whom my divine blessing flows to all nations. He would make a great nation out of him and it would keep going. You need uh, a son in Abram's time and place to make that happen. His wife is barren. He's infertile. So they're utterly dependent on on the promises of God. In the midst of them trying to trust God, and and there is a moment of great faith with Abram. I mean, just think about that. In the the face of this, like he clings to God's promises, and he does. He leaves his family, which means he leaves security. He leaves comfort. Like that is your network. It's not like I want to get away from my family, so I'm going to move to Portland or to California or I'm going to go to the East Coast. No, it's like... um, that's your people. These are, these are like thick webs of relational trust. You stick with it. And he goes. But the, the problem is that when he goes, he's there. And this is what I mean. Look down with me to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you're my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Just pause right there. That is as jacked up as it sounds. Verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw Sarai just like he supposed, and they saw that she was beautiful. Verse 15. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. 
He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male, female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. So um, Abram is basically getting rich because he's disguised, lied about his wife as a sister. But Yahweh, the Lord, inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave orders to Abram, to his men, about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way, his wife, and everything he had. It's a bit dysfunctional. (laughs) Abram, though called by God, he moves towards self-protection, which manifests in lying and manipulation, the mistreatment of his wife, just misogyny, objectifying her. And, And that comes at great risk to her physical body. And this is not the end. I mean, because remember, traumatic pain, if not dealt with, it doesn't go away. It just goes deeper. So turn over with me to Genesis chapter 20. We read this in verses 1 and 2. Now, Abram moved on from there into a region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abram said of his wife, Sarah. Now, you'll notice Abraham and Sarah, not Abram and Sarai. So God gives them a new name. The relationship is evolving. And we pick up here. And then listen to this, though. Abram said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. It's kind of like a a little um, deja vu right there. And as the story continues, it's almost a repeat of what happens in Egypt. Abimelech has this dream where Yahweh warns him of taking Sarah to be his wife. He's freaked out. He calls all of his officials and they go to Abraham and they confront him. And listen to how they confront him. This is verse 9. What have you done to us? An appropriate question. How have I wronged you that you have brought such a great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Lying, manipulation, misogyny, it's repeating. And this dysfunction, it carries on. Turn with me to Genesis 26. Uh, By this point, Abraham has two sons by two different women. That's another story, another sermon for another time. But The sons and their relationship is frayed because of favoritism. There's a value for Ishmael, the first son, because like in his old age, Ishmael came, but then Isaac is the son of promise. And so there's this conflicting favoritism, a family feud of sorts. And then we read this, Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the previous famine in Abram's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now you're like, didn't we just read this? Yes, you did. This is what Dr. Tim Mackey calls a hyperlink, which is essentially this textual clue that what you're about to see is a rerun of a previous episode with a different cast. It, it's This is kind of how the whole of the Hebrew Bible works, and certainly Genesis. It's like the same plot with different characters. Will they pass the test? Verse 2, God comes to Isaac, instructs him to stay in Gerar, and then you jump down with me to verse 7. This is what we read. When the men of that place asked him, this is Isaac, about his wife, he said, she's my sister. 
because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Almost verbatim what his dad said. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac having a really good time with his wife. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she really is your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Same city, same king, almost identical sin. Deception doesn't stop there. Just turn the page. Genesis 27. This is now extending to the next generation. Story of sons, the twin sons of Isaac. And here they come. Isaac is coming to his father. And he says, my father. Now, Isaac is at old in age. He's kind of blind. This is um, a malady he's suffering from. And so his sons are coming. And here this is. Isaac went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Just a blatant lie. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? And then listen how he like spiritualizes this response. The Lord gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. See, he had put in a, a cloak on himself, like a cloak of animal skin, so he would feel that his brother was like really hairy, which is kind of funny, um, unless you're really hairy. Sorry, I'll keep going. Uh, but he did not recognize in verse 23, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied. So, so next week, we'll attend to the blessing that's going on here. But for now, notice how Isaac, who lived with his father's deception, of his father Abraham's deception in his heart, is now deceived himself by Jacob. The irony is that Jacob is his namesake. He is literally, his name literally means like the supplanter, or you could think con man. So the sin, it's not going away. It's getting worse because that traumatic pain, when it's not dealt with, it doesn't just go away. It goes deeper. This is the depth of it. This is the third generation. But what about, what about the fourth? See, for that, turn over with me a few chapters to Genesis 37. We'll pick up in verse 2. This is what we read. This is the account of Jacob's family. Jacob has 12 sons, by the way, now by four wives. Uh, and of those 12, he also has a favorite. So you see a, a pattern emerging here. Picking up here, Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Ziphah. Those are... Uh, two of the wives, and um, it says right here, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Verse three, now Israel, a, another name for Jacob that just means wrestles with God. There's a, another story about that one. So now Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him an ornate robe for him. You've, this is the, the technicolor dream coat. That's the, yeah. So he has a fancy robe. 
When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Right here, the the story begins to pick up steam because in his pride and arrogance, his youthful arrogance, if you would call it that, Joseph begins to brag about these visions that he's having. He's kind of like telling on his older brothers. And then it leads to this conflict in verse 31. Go there with me. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him, and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So right here, the deceiver, the con man, Jacob himself is conned. To cover the deception, which is that they, the brothers, have sold their brother Joseph into slavery to cover up the deception and their rivalry. Jacob's sons force their father to endure the mirage of of his favorite son's death. And I wonder how they felt in that moment. I wonder if they felt justified in their actions. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but what we see is this pattern that over four generations, lying, misogyny, favoritism, they emerge as apparent sins woven into the fabric of this family. And sin can be a tricky word for us to work with, even today, can't it? It's often used in kind of vague overtures. It's like we, the person using it assumes we know what they mean when they say it. And so we read in our misconceptions, our hurts, our baggage. It's used to bludgeon people into shame and guilt. So I just want to be really clear. When we talk about sin, what we mean is any failure to to reflect or to represent the image of God in nature, attitude, and action. In other words, sin is utterly pervasive. It is the redefining of bad as good and good as bad in all of life. If it's helpful for you, you can think about sin in three dimensions. There's sin that's done by you. This is blatant, I know I ought not to, and I do it anyway kind of stuff. There's sin done to you. This is neglect, deceit, abuse, trauma. And there's sin done around you. The sin in your family of origin. Stuff that you did not have any part in. It wasn't stuff done directly to you, and yet it's in the air you breathe. It's things in your culture. It's things like racism and nationalism. And with any and all sin, we cannot change what we do not see. That's why we look back. That's why we go beneath the surface as we talked about last week. And that's why this week we look to the past to break the chains of the power of the past. And to break the power of generational sin, we must notice, name, and attend to in love how past pain and even trauma affects our ability to love God and love one another. This can be a hard truth to trust. I get it. I get it. I see it in my own story. And so my invitation here is to look with me to Jesus. In the Gospel according to Matthew, you can turn there with me if you'd like. 
Matthew chapter 1, the first words that we read and that we encounter are these. Obviously, Matthew knows the best way to capture his audience's imagination, a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. See, a genealogy tells a story. You you may get stuck in those places. You may go to like Chronicles and start reading and go, oh my gosh, eight chapters of names. It's the story. It's the family story. So too here, this genealogy says, this is who shaped Jesus. This is what shaped Jesus. See that? Our community group leaders are going to have this tool in their hands to put in front of their groups, um, and it'll be available more generally. But it's just called the genogram, and it's not as fancy as it sounds. It is a way of of mapping out. It's like a family tree, a a way of drawing intricate lines of relationship, a, a way of telling our story. And as I've worked through my own genogram, like when I say that this is a hard truth to trust, I see to myself, to, to look back on both my, my parents' side to the third and fourth generation, adultery, divorce, affairs littered everywhere, and it scares me to the depths of who I am, not just for my present relationship with my wife, but for my boys. But if we're to attend to it, we have to be able to name it. And we can't do that unless we look there. And so with Jesus, we fix our gaze. And it's kind of encouraging because when we read this line in Matthew 1 and 2, like we see that Jesus' family is a hot mess. <laughs> it's like kind of encouraging for me. Uh, but that's not the end, is it? See, in Jesus, we actually have the power to break the chains of the past and we see it in his life. It's not just a religious axiom that we throw out there to pump ourselves up and to think rightly. No, like we actually have the abiding power of Jesus to break the chains of the past. We see it in his life. Two chapters after this, after his family story, the genealogy, the end of chapter three, Jesus enters into the baptismal waters of the Jordan. Now, if you remember the story, John the Baptist is out there and he is uh, doing a baptism of repentance, which is essentially saying, let's do a restart on the people of Israel. Come, enter into the waters. The Jordan waters are significant because this is the river where the people came out of the wilderness and into the promised land. So the the symbolism is so rich. The people are coming out to receive this baptism of repentance, to turn back to Yahweh as the one true God through whom renewal will break out. So when Jesus goes in those waters, he's saying a couple of things. He's saying, I am down for renewal. And by the way, the renewal you've been waiting for is here. And when he comes up out of the waters, this moment just kind of shakes the whole text. And this is what we read. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Just let that sink in. The father's affirmation uproots Jesus and replants him in the story of the father's faithfulness. It it uproots Jesus and replants him secure in the Father's love. It's like he doesn't dismiss where he's come from. He acknowledges this. Yes, this is where you come from, the lying, the misogyny, the favoritism, etc. And 
I am rerouting you in me. And this is so important because of who the Father is. Just check this out in Exodus 34 if you want. You can flip back over to me. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Yahweh is speaking his name over Moses. He's declaring who he is. And this is who the one true creator God says he is. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You could translate that, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The beauty of that. But he's not done, is he? Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And you might be thinking, this is kind of an odd way to bring a teaching to a close. You're you're maybe thinking, I'm down with the whole loyal love and faithfulness bit. Like that I can get on board with. I want some forgiveness from thy wickedness. Amen. But the whole not leaving the guilty unpunished, that seems a bit insensitive and out of touch. And I don't know if I want to relate to a God like that. See, that's actually the really, really good part. (laughs) That's the part where the beauty and the integrity of the creator God is held intact. The wordplay here is meant to bring a picture to mind. For us, it would be Lady Justice. She's quote-unquote blind to justice, has the scale in her hands. So just now picture instead of Lady Justice, it's Yahweh and his eyes are wide open. So Yahweh is holding the scale. And on one side, you have uh, like the, the wickedness of sin, three to four generations. So it's stacked. The wickedness and the weight of sin is three to four generations high. And on the other side, The weight of forgiveness and loyal love is stacked to the thousands. It's not just this. It is like, I would go, I'm out of frame. It's so big. It's like, it is unreal. The weight of mercy is overwhelming with the Father. Jesus' story is re-rooted in this. It's re-rooted in the story of mercy. And that's where the power is. The, The power is in this dynamic expression of love and mercy personified in Jesus of Nazareth. In the place of lying, there's truth in Jesus. In the place of misogyny and the mistreatment and objectification of women, there's mutualism. And the raising up of women and men to be people who bear God's image with integrity. In the place of favoritism, there's inclusion. And partiality is put to death. This is the new story. In Jesus, this is our story. In Jesus, this is our new family story. And in the church, we are being re-parented into this story. So yes, we do come from a place. We come from a people and we must look there. And in Jesus, we are held secure so that we can look back, so that we don't have to live with fear of that, but in love, we can move toward our past. 
You see, this is the new story, and this is Jesus' life. This isn't some abstraction, and so it's no wonder that the first confrontation that Jesus has following the Father's affirmation goes like this. This is Matthew 4, 3. Jesus is cast out by the Spirit into the wilderness. He's fasted 40 days and nights. There he goes. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Doesn't come at him with a stick. Doesn't come at him with a threat. He comes at him with this slight accusation. If you are the son of God, casting a shadow, a doubt on his identity. See, there is power in the father's love to break the chains of the past. And you better believe that that is where the enemy of our soul will come to test, to press on our identity, our rootedness in the Father. Sure, sure, there's love there. Yeah, 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 I get that. But what about what your dad did to you? No, there's power there. What about that one time where you did that one thing. No, there's power there too. What about all those times that she said that and then this happened and you just happened to be? No, no, no. There's power there too. Every place that sin runs deep, the mercy of the Father comes in with abounding refreshment to the third and fourth and to the thousands. That is our story in Jesus. That is the gospel, that all of it can be broken and in the mercy and power of God, we can be secure in love to look back at the past. We don't do this alone. So if you if you decide this week to, to take up the genogram and you go online, I don't know, I think it's like genogram.org or something like that. And you look through and you do your little family tree and you start to draw the relationship lines and look at some of the themes. My guess is, is that in those themes, as you see them in your own life, you, you will feel the pressure of that. So this is my, this is my like pastoral caution to you is do not do that alone. If you're not in a community, like reach out. We want to plug you in. If that doesn't, if you're like not there, it's all invitation. Go to a person you love who loves Jesus. If you, if you're just starting to follow Jesus, please reach out to me. Like th this is not a thing to do alone. Because that place, those, those are vulnerable places. Those are tender places. So the father's not saying, yeah, you're secure in love. Just go get it. No, he's saying, I'm holding you. Why? Because we need to be held in this. Because this is hard. This is a difficult truth to bear. I mean, I, I don't know how many of you want to call up your mom or your grandma and start asking like, hey, so before, um, dad, were you promiscuous? Was there any affairs? What about, what about with grandpa? Whatever happened... To, to that. By the way, I, um, those are not easy conversations to have. I feel like I'm still reeling from them. <laughs> it's like, but if we name it, if we attend to it in love, the love of the Father, my goodness, like, just to, like the hope that that brings with us, not just for our project self, but for the gift of our lives to be given away in love.
This is, this is a journey. And this is kind of heavy to talk about generational sin. That's why we're going to talk about generational blessing. Because, you know, in the New Testament, we'll later go on and say that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. That is, he endured the weight of sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To receive the blessing of right standing with God. If we say it another way, in Jesus, we too are rerooted in the Father's love. This is less about like putting the dish towel in the right place as it is like those are the, the conflicts of our family, those petty arguments or, or, or even just seeing perfectionism as a part of your family story that lingers in your own. No, this is about looking back in love so that we can be present to God's love now so that we don't have to be entangled and enmeshed in the things of the past, but by the love and the mercy of the Father, those chains can be broken in Jesus's name and we can stand secure in our love of our Father. So my prayer is this, courage. Courage to notice it, to name it, and to attend to it with community in love. May grace and peace be with you, church. Amen.